My name is Sarah Rowland-Jones. I uh, uh, work here as a professor of immunology. I'm based in something called the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine, which is up on the hill in, on the John Radcliffe site. Um, I trained originally in, in, did my first degree in Cambridge, but I'm, I'm sure you'll make allowances for that. I came here as a, a clinical medical student and uh, trained subsequently in infectious diseases, um, and I'm a, an honorary consultant here uh, looking after patients on the John Waring Ward, which is the infectious disease ward. Um, but as quite, as quite a junior doctor became very interested in HIV infection, um, I was uh, a senior house officer in London at around the time that the first patients with HIV were being um, uh, recognised uh, and treated in London. And I think it was the really uh, awful situation of many of these people that uh, convinced me to pursue a career focusing on HIV medicine and then subsequently um, research. The first patient I looked after whose uh, uh, CT scan we'll see in a little while was a young man who um, had uh, recently come to terms with his sexuality and had moved down from Scotland and worked in a gay bar. When he was diagnosed as having uh, HIV presenting with quite late stage AIDS, First of all, he lost his job, and then he lost the home that he, uh, he, that he had, which was living above the bar, uh, and all his friends stopped visiting, and his family wrote and said they were very sorry, but they had to think of the children, and they wouldn't be able to come. And it, it was the experience of facing a terminal disease whilst losing all the support that people normally uh, experience in that um, circumstance uh, that really struck me. I think things have, uh, have changed a lot since then. That was the early 1980s. Um, but that is, that's still a very important memory uh, for me. So um, after I uh, finished my clinical training, I uh, moved to do research, and most of that time I've spent uh, in Oxford, but with a strong interest in HIV in Africa. <coughs> uh, and for four years until um, last uh, summer, I worked in uh, West Africa in the MRC Gambia. Um, and I'm going to talk about HIV uh, vaccine development and the problems and the issues and uh, uh, the recently announced successes. Um, and uh, my talk is liberally illustrated with uh, pictures of our travels in Africa. So if the science is um, uh, not interesting, uh, do, do feel free to enjoy the pictures. <laughs> so this is the, the uh, brain of the unfortunate man I was uh, telling you about who, uh, who presented with um, a, 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 a what was a, then a very typical presentation, um, a, a, a rather bizarre infection called toxoplasma forming a, a swelling in the brain. You can immediately see that that's abnormal. Um, this is now not so commonly seen because people are treated earlier, and also the drugs that people take to prevent uh, pneumocystis, another very common presentation in those days, a chest infection, also help prevent toxoplasma. And this, the lower picture is a picture of the um, AIDS quilts, which were very much a feature of the early AIDS conferences, and people made them uh, in memory of loved ones. And this is a, a, a fairly obvious uh, couple um, who, who had both died of um, HIV. As you probably know, the first cases were reported in the um, early 1980s. And when I was a medical student, we saw HIV very much in terms of risk groups, uh, that there were certain kinds of people that got HIV infection and other kinds of people uh, were not uh, uh, vulnerable to the infection. Of course, now we know really that HIV is a disease of anybody who has sex, which I think counts for an awful lot of people in the world. Um, but, uh, and also many people who don't, if we think about the children um, who have become uh, infected through mother-to-baby transmission, which I'll talk about a bit later. So we got to the, the, uh, identifying the virus very quickly. Only a couple of years later, after the first syndrome was uh, described, the virus uh, was identified. Um, but, uh, and, and we then learned quite a lot about it because uh, we knew uh, something about the family of viruses it, it belongs to. And the key thing is that it uses an enzyme, which we call reverse transcriptase, to make a copy. Uh, and that copy uh, of itself becomes integrated. That's a, a fancy word to explain it becoming actually in, an inherent part of the DNA of the host-infected cell. The, one of the important points to make is that this um, enzyme in, in HIV is inherently um, prone to uh, making mistakes. And if that would be a problem for many organisms, we have many checks and balances to make sure that when we reproduce or ourselves reproduce, we don't make mistakes. 
but the, uh, the, the, the making mistakes in HIV comes alongside a very rapid uh, replication rate, so that the virus doesn't really mind if it makes a whole lot of rubbish. And in fact, what we now know is that it makes a mistake pretty much every time it copies itself. And perhaps more than 90% of the virus in an infected person is, is um, unable to replicate any further, what, what I've referred to as rubbish. But the advantage of this to the virus is that any time uh, something comes along that threatens it, such as antiretroviral drugs or, as we'll see, the, the immune response uh, to the virus, then the virus has, has a, a, a sort of um, up its sleeve a variant that can potentially escape that. And this makes it a particularly difficult target for both the immune response and for, and for drugs. Um, and it means that, uh, and, and it's thought that every possible variant of the virus that could be made is made within the first few weeks of infection. So if you want to tackle this, you have to do it at a very early stage. Um, and of course, most people don't get recognized at a very early stage of infection. The first cases in Africa were reported around the same time. And one of the virus, the, the second strain of HIV, which I've been very interested in because it's particularly prominent in West Africa, was picked up in 1986. Um, and we think that um, uh, more than 50, 45 million people have been infected just in these last uh, uh, two to three decades. And around 33 million are currently living uh, with HIV and AIDS. So this is a virus that from a very uh, uh, small beginning has, has taken a massive toll. And I think that's why it's attracted so much attention, because this is something that really could devastate um, the, the, the human race, and in many parts of the world is all, already doing so. So these are the, uh, the sort of stark figures, which I think um, hide a lot of uh, human suffering. And uh, they, this is something that the um, United uh, Nations um, AIDS group put out every year in, in, in cooperation with the uh, WHO, the, the, the sort of estimates for different parts of the, of the world. And most people will know that sub-Saharan Africa is, is the worst affected and accounts for the vast majority of people with HIV infection. But there are some hot spots. Um, a, a few years ago, you wouldn't have had a, a, any figures for Eastern Europe um, but in the former Soviet states, HIV has taken off with a vengeance, uh, and that's probably one of the fastest-growing areas with many different strains circulate, co-circulating. Um, and we're almost certainly underestimating the epidemic in China, which also has the potential to grow huge. India has, uh, because it's one of the, it's a very has a very large population, has the most uh, infected patients, uh, people of any country, single country. Uh, and, and the figures in North America, Latin America, and the Caribbean have been, and Europe have been stable really for um, the past couple of decades. So, uh, if you think particularly, uh, if you break down those figures into the numbers of new infections, uh, the WHO estimates 7,400 um, per day in 2007, which is the, their last data. And the vast majority of those are people from uh, what, what we would think of as the developing world. A significant proportion of those are children, and the burden of HIV falls particularly heavily on children in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Disease is very rapid in children, uh, in, Af in African children. 50% uh, of children without treatment uh, will die by the age of two um, in, in Africa. Um, but also, it, it has a disproportionate effect on uh, by removing the adults. So many um, households in Africa are, are led by children who have to take on uh, responsibilities at a very early age. Um, and about now, uh, about half the uh, infected population are women. And particularly worrying are, are the figures in young people. And it seems that adolescents are, uh, may be unusually vulnerable to HIV infection. So there's a very rapid rate of increase, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in teenagers. Uh, I've, um, over the years, seen all sorts of things uh, said about HIV infection, and you've probably seen some of those. Um, the, the one thing I think we can disprove pretty quickly is that it's a CIA plot. Um, this is a very intelligent virus and couldn't possibly have been invented by the Americans. <laughs> Um, but apart from that, all sorts of things uh, may be possible. Uh, I think one of the most bizarre headlines I've seen comes from a, a daily newspaper in Africa, which I, I still can't really explain, and the, the, the text has sort of disappeared over time. So, um, <laughs> but that was the headline. <laughs> 
so where did HIV uh, come from? Um, well, the, uh, we know that this thing, the, the, the family that HIV belongs to is a retrovirus, and that most uh, animals, most mammals, have a retrovirus. Uh, mice have them, uh, cats have them, uh, uh, and monkeys have, most different monkey species have their own. And often they don't cause disease in that particular species. In fact, in most cases, they don't. The animal has learned to live with them quite happily. Whether that's taken many years of co-evolution of the virus and, and the host is, is not known, but that's probably the case. The HIV-2, which is really very much limited to West Africa, we know came from a particular uh, virus of West African monkeys, which are called sooty mangabees. And um, the molecular virologists suggest that it's come into the human population on several uh, occasions, um, and probably through the bushmeat trade. Um, uh, um, monkeys are, um, parts of monkeys are sold widely in, in uh, rural markets in, in West Africa, and probably through catching or preparing uh, monkey meat uh, and contact with blood uh, is likely to be how these viruses have come in. Um, and there are probably many more uh, viruses out there. Um, a new species of HIV was recently reported that came in from gorillas. Um, and there are others circulating, particularly in, in, in central West Africa. Um, and many, all of these have the capacity to be the next big HIV um, epidemic. HIV-1 um, looks like uh, the virus that infects chimps uh, in Central Africa around Cameroon and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where, it, where the virus probably first surfaced in Africa. And the people, uh, the monkeys that are infected with the virus naturally don't usually get sick. Um, the mathematical uh, biologists who understand these things have, have developed a, a sort of molecular clock to try and work out where, um, when HIV might have come into the human population and then started to uh, spread out. And they, they, the estimate is that it came into humans around 1930 and probably then started developing into its many different families. The first case that we absolutely are sure about is from a sample that was collected from a man uh, in uh, what's now the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo and goes back to 1959. Earlier samples, uh, we don't know that they didn't have HIV, they're just not of a high enough quality to, to, uh, to determine. Um, in Africa, where I have had a particular concern, uh, many um, hospitals would contain uh, people looking a bit like this man. He has, uh, I can't see very well from this picture, but he has widespread shingles, which is often a sign of, of uh, an early sign of HIV infection. Uh, these are orphans uh, in a Nairobi orphanage um, that we also had uh, some contact with. So just to tell you about Africa in particular, by uh, 1986, a survey done in uh, prostitutes working in a Kenyan slum showed that already uh, more than two-thirds of the prostitutes uh, were infected with HIV, which was a big surprise to everybody who were working there, um, and I think was a, a sort of herald of, of, of the scale of the epidemic subsequently. And in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, and it's still the case, up to one in three adults in the major cities are infected with HIV. Um, a colleague of mine uh, recently started at uh, the University of Cape Town, and uh, she was told as part of their induction pro proce uh, process that they should assume that uh, one, third, one in three of their fellow students and one in three of their lecturers uh, would be HIV positive. And I think that kind of brings it home to, uh, it, in, and certainly in much of Africa, it's very much a middle-class disease, so it's, it's had a particular toll on the professions and, and uh, uh, some of the more productive parts of society. And it's continued to climb, and, and probably the highest rate, rates anywhere are in uh, southern Africa. And it's particularly sad that South Africa really didn't start to have much HIV reported until the early 90s, so quite a long time after East and West Africa. Um, but uh, whilst other good things were going on in that country, um, there was a fair neglect, really, of the... Um, of, of the consequences of HIV, and it spread to very high levels, so that if you go to an antenatal clinic in KwaZulu-Natal, up to half of the women uh, presenting there uh, would be HIV positive. And as you can imagine, this has a huge impact on the economy of these countries, and, and for several years now, this has had a measurable effect on uh, uh, the gross uh, domestic product of, of many sub-Saharan African countries.
And it's been uh, predicted uh, that, and this is uh, only a year away, that all the gains in uh, life expectancy and child survival that were achieved through public health measures in the 20th century are likely to be reversed uh, by the end of this decade as a consequence of AIDS. So um, this lady gets a very unfortunate uh, press. She was the U.S. Health Secretary in 1984, which was a press conference to announce, um, uh, if you're American, you'll, uh, the identification of the AIDS virus by Bob Gallo. The, the French would say they identified it a few months previously. Um, and uh, it, the main aim of the press conference was to say they now knew what the virus was, they'd be able to screen the blood supply, this would uh, make the blood supply safe. And she was asked about the possibility of a vaccine, and she said that as far as she was concerned, a vaccine would be available for testing within two years. And this has been quoted time and time again, and uh, she'd been made to look a real idiot. But in fact, she, found, she later commented many years after her retirement that Bob Gallo, the man who discovered the virus, told her to say that, and he's been very quiet about that. <laughs> So this is a, a baby uh, at, a, at a, um, a, a child health clinic in the Gambia, where I was, as I mentioned, was working for several years. Um, and he's being weighed and, uh, and checked out before he receives uh, some of his uh, routine vaccines. And the routine program of vaccines that is uh, um, uh, used really across the developing world is called the EPI, the Extended Program of Immunization. And that's really one of our major public health uh, success stories. And the Gambia is one of the poorest countries in Africa, yet it, it managed to vaccinate well over 90% of its children against these various diseases um, and has just introduced pneumococcal vaccination as well. So it's a huge impact on uh, infectious diseases. So, so we, we can do vaccines in general uh, very well. And I think to understand why we don't have an HIV vaccine, it's probably important to go back to the very um, original understanding of what we mean by protective immunity. The idea is that if you survive your first attack of measles or um, whooping cough, uh, then uh, and, and so and you sorry, so you don't die in that first illness, but then you're protected it protected from it lifelong. So nobody gets measles twice. And this was first articulated by um, a Greek historian who was describing the plague of Athens, uh, which was many um, uh, millennia ago. And we still don't really know what the plague of Athens actually was, but it had a pretty devastating effect of wiping out about a third of the population. And they had trouble trying to find people to look after the, the sick for, for obvious reasons. And one of the things that emerged over the course of the plague was that the people who had had it and recovered were the best people to nurse the sick, because as far as they were concerned, uh, they, as far as they could see, uh, these people uh, didn't become sick a second time. And in fact, they, they received the congratulations uh, of others believing that they were safe from all known diseases. And I think that um, uh, the, uh, the Greek historian doesn't comment whether that was indeed the case. It seems unlikely. But um, in general, that's the principle of protective immunity on which all our current vaccines are based. So that if you give somebody a small amount of or a weakened form of the uh, original organism, you induce uh, immunity that is like having the first attack of the illness um, but without uh, the major symptoms. This became a little bit more sophisticated um, in England in the 18th century uh, when uh, uh, smallpox was a major problem. And uh, as most of you will uh, know the story, uh, Jenner noted that milkmates who had acquired a related virus called cowpox, causing uh, pustules on their hands, appeared to be resistant to smallpox. So what he did without any... Uh, ethics committee approval was to take uh, material from cowpox blisters um, and put them into the skin of healthy donors. And we call it vaccination because um, this is related to the Latin for cow. Um, and then, uh, even less ethically, he performed a live virus challenge on a child, um, which would never get through these days. By, uh, um, one of his vaccinees was a, um, a boy working uh, locally, and he gave him smallpox uh, virus, uh, and he didn't get sick, so thereby proving uh, the efficacy of his vaccine, but something that's quite hard to do uh, these days. And, and so this is what we... we so the smallpox um, vaccine is based on a related but much milder form of the illness, 
And most of our current vaccines, are, and the most successful ones, are live vi viruses, usually, or, or other, uh, but that have been weakened in the laboratory. So they don't usually cause disease, although, as all of you will know, you sometimes get a fever or, or, or feel a little bit unwell at the time of immunization. And the killed whole virus vaccines are less effective, um, uh, but they're still, still used in certain forms. With some uh, uh, more modern approaches, um, the hepatitis B um, immunization, which is a very effective vaccine, you simply use the coat, the protein of the virus, uh, as a synthetic protein, and that provides um, long-term protection. So, with that in mind, thinking about an HIV vaccine, the, these, uh, the strategies that have been widely used uh, previously are thought to be too risky um, and, and too much of a, a gamble, particularly for manufacturers and uh, um, pharmaceutical companies, to, uh, to, to use for HIV. Even though in practice, in animal models, um, these approaches seem to be effective. And there are some people who are continuing to pursue killed HIV vaccines or live attenuated HIV vaccines because of the success in animal models. But ultimately, if this vaccine is going to be used widely, you would need a, a, a drug company as a partner, and very few of them uh, would be willing, to, as, as far as we can see, to take that kind of approach on. So uh, for, most, for ever, uh, most infections for which we have a successful vaccine, with the possible exception of rabies, we do know that there is protective immunity. But as far as we can tell, most people infected with HIV do eventually develop AIDS. So we don't even know if it is possible to generate protective immunity against HIV. And uh, a question which hasn't needed to be asked for other vaccines is um, what we need to do uh, in order to get protective immunity. So we've had to understand much more about the immunology uh, and uh, the pathogenesis of this organism than we would necessarily uh, in, other in other settings. And the same applies, I think, to uh, diseases like malaria and TB. And, and one of my uh, colleagues is talking about the TB vaccine work that they've been developing in Oxford um, over the course of the weekend. So there are other problems that are inherent to HIV as well. Um, I told you how, uh, how variable it was because of the, this uh, tendency to make escape, uh, mistakes as it's copied. As far as we know, when people get infected, they get infected with a single strain. Uh, and that's uh, very recent studies have shown really that only a, usually only one, very occasionally two uh, individual viruses get into an infected person and set up the effect, infection. But... Um, uh, because you wouldn't know what that virus was going to be um, from, the, uh, from, from your possible contact, you have to try and think of making a vaccine that uh, covers all the p potential variants. And those are very different um, in different parts of the world and in different people. Also, the virus, um, and like most uh, infections, is transmitted in many different ways, by breast milk, um, by uh, needles and blood, uh, as well as sexually. So you have to think about providing infection, uh, providing protection at, um, at different sites of the body. Going more about uh, the variability of the virus, um, the, the molecular virologists do this thing called a, a phylogenetic tree, where they look at uh, how the, the length of each of these branches tells you how far the virus has, has changed. And this is the 1959 sample from the very earliest case that's uh, recorded. And this is where they think the original uh, AIDS virus came into the human population. And, it's, and, and even without knowing much about um, phylogeny, you can see that the virus has changed and, and also developed into quite distinct families, um, which uh, are, are named as different uh, letters um, of the alphabet. One of the things that's a particular issue where there are several strains circulating together, as, as, as in Central Africa, and now actually in, in Eastern Europe, which, which has a whole alphabet um, uh, going on, uh, is that it's possible for somebody to be infected with two different strains, of, distinct strains of virus, and these can get together in the course of uh, <laughs> it, uh, infection and create new strains. So, for example, the E-clade that's uh, prevalent in Thailand uh, has got a bit of um, A-clade virus and something else, another parent that we don't actually know. And some of these become uh, stronger and, and more dominant and set up new infections of their own. 
Um, this is just to point out that the virus uh, can, it takes place, infection takes place on, uh, on different routes. Um, just to explain the picture on the left, um, a colleague uh, took this photo uh, of, a, of a, an advert for a sex doctor uh, in, uh, in one of the Francophone African countries. Um, he, so he was offering to treat an awful lot of interesting things. My French isn't good enough to tell you what all of them are, but... Um, but basically, we don't know very much about how to generate immunity at a mucosal surface. That's the, 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 the site of most uh, infections, uh, of, of most HIV infections. So that's something that we really need to understand more about. Once the infection has uh, established, um, it, it, uh, it, one, these are some of the um, reasons that it causes such a problem. Uh, such a long-term and, and difficult problem. I mentioned earlier that the virus becomes part of your own DNA, um, and it, uh, the virus can move directly from cell to cell. So antibodies, which are the proteins that we make in the circulation that stick on the outside of pathogens, um, can't really access the virus very effectively. So you can really only get at the virus by destroying the infected cells. And these cells are cells that express a, a marker on the surface called CD4, which the virus needs to get into cells. And they are really crucial uh, cells uh, for the functioning of the immune system. So if we're thinking about actually getting rid of HIV uh, uh, by a curative strategy, it's really very difficult um, even to conceive of how you might do that. So you might have as many as 10 million virus particles in the blood, and you might be able to get at those with a drug that were circulating in the blood. But you'd also have to rid the body of all the cells expressing this particular receptor, CD4, um, containing, uh, containing virus. And as far as we know, even the best therapy that we have, which in the West has made HIV much more of a chronic disease uh, than uh, the life sentence it was originally, that this, uh, there's a reservoir of cells uh, that, uh, that uh, are, are untouched by the drugs. And if you stopped therapy, the virus immediately comes back up again to the level it was before treatment was started. So it's really very difficult to see how we might actually cure people. Um, of this virus, and it's really difficult to see how we could, we could do so without damaging the rest of the immune system. There was a case reported last year of a man who um, had a complication of, uh, of HIV infection, um, a, a, a blood malignancy, um, and in, as part of the treatment for that, he had a bone marrow transplant, and which involved ablating, giving him very intensive chemotherapy and radiotherapy to get rid of his own immune system. And uh, they weren't trying to treat his HIV, they were trying to treat his, his uh, lymphoma. But in fact, when he recovered from uh, the bone marrow transplant, he, he, he appeared to be uh, HIV uninfected. Um, but this is obviously not a treatment for um, uh, the vast majority of infected people in the world. I should mention that the, the bone marrow transplant he'd been given um, was from rare people, which I'll talk about shortly, who lack the second receptor that the virus needs to enter the cells. So they've given him a, basically an HIV-resistant bone marrow. So um, just uh, from a simplistic uh, point of view, if this is the infected uh, CD4 T cell, um, you can attack this in, in the virus in two ways. These are the antibodies which... Uh, really do are Y-shaped and stick on the outside of protein uh, uh, of organisms. And these are cells um, which are, are cytotoxic or killer cells that can recognize and kill virus-infected cells. But both of these depend on assistance from these CD4 helper cells, which are the ones that are infected and being destroyed by the virus. So it's quite a difficult task to, uh, to um, mount an effective immune response if the coordinator of the immune response is being damaged um, by the virus. So this is the sort of probably the most uh, uh, heavy slide, really, just trying to explain that even in, in, in an infected person, it's, it's not that the immune system isn't trying. It's been estimated that one in five of all of your immune cells are responding to HIV um, in an infected person. But um, we, uh, the, if the response um, just somehow doesn't quite hit the mark. So that people make antibodies against the virus, but they're not usually the kind that, or generally the kind that can stop the virus uh, or neutralize, is, is the technical term, the virus that is transmitted from person to person. 
I mentioned that these key immune cells are lost very early in infection, and that's partly because the virus preferentially targets those. And there is another form of, uh, of, of immune response, the killer or cytotoxic T cells, um, and they, they do a good job for a long time, but they ultimately fail too. So it's much better to prevent infection before, uh, than, than to try and treat it um, uh, with that after it's established. And um, the, uh, uh, the antibody response um, is still not entirely clear why people don't make a very a good response um, to the virus. But there are things that make it particularly difficult target for antibodies. And this equally applies to antibodies that might be generated in a vaccine. And one of the issues is that the virus surface is covered in sugar molecules, which don't have a particular, uh, that aren't, aren't particularly critical for the virus, but it makes it a very slippery surface for antibodies. And the, the parts that are absolutely crucial, that the virus really can't do without, uh, which, if you're going, which are therefore conserved and less likely to vary, are in very deep pockets, and they're kind of overhung by sugar molecules, and really very hard for, for antibodies, to, antibodies to get at. Or other, even more crucial parts, are actually only revealed when the virus docks onto the CD4 molecule, so for a very short time. And antibodies, again, usually can't get at the virus at that point. Whereas the rest of the envelope can change uh, quite happily without really affecting how well the virus functions. So the virus, if, if you do make good antibodies against it, the virus can evolve very quickly to avoid it. Now, the, the killer T cells are, are the other main arm, and they produce a lot of different things. They do kill the cell, but they also produce soluble factors, uh, antiviral factors that, uh, that um, attack the virus as well. And just one uh, technical point is that they, what they see is um, how they recognize an infected cell is that small parts of the virus or uh, uh, any other pathogen or indeed a tumor if this is a, a cancerous cell are held on the surface of the cell, uh, a bit like a, a red rag to a bull with um, a little tiny fragment in an HLA molecule. And all of us have different HLA molecules and some are more effective uh, than others for presenting particular pathogens. Um, and that's, uh, that's how the T cell sees the infected cell, and that triggers this cascade of, of, of reactions which lead to the death of the infected cell. And we do know that these T cells can kill the virus before it makes, uh, can kill the infected cell before it makes new infectious virus. So it is an effective way of controlling the virus um, uh, for much of the infected person's life. So this is potentially one of the routes where... Um, Uh, where, where, the, uh, where the virus might be vulnerable. So, um, slide before that, yeah. So, is it better than? Is it better then to try, if, if it's so difficult to make an antibody response, which is how we think most of our current vaccines work, is it better then to make a T cell response against the virus? Um, and the, uh, many people followed this approach, um, and in fact, one of the first vaccines uh, of this sort to be tested uh, was developed here in Oxford uh, by uh, my colleague and, and PhD supervisor, Andrew McMichael. And this was, went through a number of animal and, uh, studies and eventually tested for the first time in humans. Um, uh, some of you may recognize the MP for Oxford uh, Western Abingdon, who was the first uh, person to receive uh, the uh, vaccine in Oxford. He'd been a junior doctor on our ward uh, before he went into <coughs> politics. Um, you can see a guy with a camera behind and another one here. In fact, he had to have uh, one uh, ampoule of vaccine and four of saline to allow all the cameramen to get their picture. <laughs> <laughs> but he got re-elected. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, he, it makes him very useful uh, in uh, debates about uh, um, genetic manipulation because he refers to himself as a genetically manipulated human um, you know, when, it, when this comes up in the house. So, but it's a question, really, whether this is going to uh, provide enough protection against HIV uh, infection. We, although uh, many of our current vaccines do stimulate this kind of immune response, they nearly all make a good antibody response as well. 
And people became very gloomy uh, around two years ago uh, in the HIV community uh, when a study uh, was published uh, from uh, a company uh, called Merck working in collaboration with the big American HIV vaccines trial network. And they had set up a study of what to everybody seemed to be to be the best candidate um, and seemed to, have, seemed to have worked in monkeys and uh, seemed to give the right kind of T cells in humans. And they had a, a, a plan that if after a certain number of infections in the high-risk groups that they were, had immunized, uh, they would then analyze the results um, without continuing the trial further. And so they, when they analyzed these early infections, um, they found that not only did the virus not protect, uh, the vaccine not protect people, but there was a suggestion that in, a, in some of the uh, vaccinees, there may even have been an increased risk of infection. Um, and this was particularly worrying. Uh, it suggested that the, the, the vaccine contained HIV, bits of HIV inserted into um, the common, one of the cold viruses, adenovirus, and it had been made to be replication uh, defective. And the suggestion was uh, that people with, uh, who, had had, who had seen this particular cold virus before um, and had high titers of antibodies appeared to be more susceptible uh, to HIV infection after the vaccination. In fact, this was a, probably a statistical quirk because as, as the, as the trial, uh, further analysis of the infections in the trial has gone on, this hasn't been confirmed. The people then became very gloomy about uh, the prospect of vaccines uh, altogether, and they felt that T-cell vaccines uh, may be doomed, and uh, uh, there was a lot of, uh, of um, hand-waving and, and soul-searching and a feeling that the community should return to basic science and try and understand the virus better before trying again with uh, a vaccine. There are various ways you can try and understand protective immunity uh, against HIV. I mean, the obvious way really would be if you had a good vaccine, um, and, and even if it, even if it wasn't uh, completely successful, you could look at what uh, what correlated with uh, with success. Um, but that's uh, we haven't we're not really at that stage. So at the moment, most of uh, the immunologists are looking at people who have encountered HIV and then done relatively well, and in particular, people who were exposed to the virus who don't become infected, or people who have uh, remained well uh, despite being infected and, and have appeared to control their virus load without the aid of drugs for long periods of time. And uh, one of the uh, tactics that we um, employed was to look at uh, people who were exposed um, but not infected. And in fact, um, despite all the, the gloom in what I've told you before, it's actually relatively hard to catch HIV infection. And if, you, uh, if you're in a, in a, a stable relationship with an HIV-infected person, we know from studies of, say, uh, haemophiliac men and their wives before they were found to be HIV-positive, that only around 10 or 15% of the wives became infected. Um, uh, and uh, if you have a needle stick injury with known HIV-infected blood, your chances are around 1 in 1,000 of acquiring the virus. And uh, same with children born to infected mothers, um, uh, even those who are exposed, subsequently exposed to HIV in breast milk. And one of the first examples of this, this is an old, old paper um, uh, uh, from when I was a PhD student, was uh, looking at a child who was born to a haemophiliac father and his wife had become infected in the course of them trying to have a baby. Um, and the... Uh, uh, the, at that stage, we didn't have very sensitive tests to know whether the baby was infected, and we we had we, uh, we uh, you had to wait till the mother's antibody, which the baby carries in the blood for the first year of life, had disappeared to know whether the baby was actually infected himself. And uh, when the baby was about nine months old, we had some blood from him, and we found that he had these killer T cells circulating in his blood that recognized HIV. And we were quite depressed about that. We thought that probably meant that he was uh, going to turn out to be HIV infected. But when his mother's antibody had, was cleared from the uh, system, uh, he was virus negative by all the tests. So this suggested that you could make a killer T cell response to the virus without antibodies and without actual infection. And of course, because of confidentiality, I never actually met that baby. This is uh, my own baby just showing off some baby photographs. <laughs> so um, one of the causes of, of, of not being infected uh, reported here, I'm sorry, I don't have the full cover, but from the Sunday Times, this man can't catch AIDS. This was a, uh, a gentleman in New York who um, had done all the things that his friends had, um, but whilst they were all getting sick, 
he had failed to catch HIV infection and he offered himself and his blood uh, to a New York laboratory and they investigated um, and found that his blood was very difficult to infect in the laboratory. And what it turned out was that this particular gene called CCR5 uh, is necessary, as long with CD4, for the virus to get into cells. And around uh, one in a hundred of Caucasians of particularly of northern European, Scandinavian and northern European descent, are, uh, uh, lack both copies of this gene. And if you, if you have uh, no copies of the gene, then your cells don't express this receptor and the virus can't get in. Um, but the, this isn't uh, present in most African or Asian populations. And it's, it's been speculated that this has been selected in Caucasians in relation to the, the plagues of, uh, of the early um, uh, part of, last, uh, of the last millennium. Um, but this only accounts for a very, very small number of people who are uh, exposed but not infected. One of the studies that we went on to do after the baby study was um, in the Gambia, where we were looking at people uh, who were exposed, working as sex workers uh, in the clinic, who were exposed to HIV but hadn't come and been infected. And just as we had with the baby, we could find uh, these same killer T cells uh, in, those, uh, in those children. And very extensive testing revealed no evidence for HIV infection. And these women had been exposed to both HIV-1 and HIV-2. And HIV-2 is generally regarded as, as not being as, as virulent a strain as HIV-1. And we wondered if exposure to that particular strain had led them to generate, be able to generate protective immunity. We then set up a collaboration uh, with a, a group uh, of Canadians working uh, with Kenyan uh, doctors and researchers in Nairobi. And they had uh, started off as a, a study uh, as of a particularly unpleasant genital ulcer disease called chancroid, and I haven't got any pictures of that um, to show you. You'd be glad to know. But um, uh, they, uh, very early on in their study, they thought, uh, which was in the early 1980s, they thought they should just check how much HIV there was in their group. And they found that more than 90% of the sex workers in this uh, poor slum uh, called Pumwani, Jengo, in, in Nairobi, were HIV-infected. And uh, this, uh, so uh, the uh, it, the lady, there was an economic incentive not to use condoms because uh, their part in many of their clients really didn't like condoms, and they would pay the women more for sex without a condom. And it was only a few sort of cents difference, but it was a it was an economic driver for unprotected ex excess, uh, unprotected sex. And uh, we we estimated that um, there would be several exposures. Uh, per year significant number of exposures per year. And what uh, Frank and Plummer and uh, the Canadian professor who was leading this study and his colleagues noticed that if everybody was equally infected, uh, susceptible to HIV, you would start out with 100% of people uninfected and you would have an exponential curve with time um, and down to, uh, down to zero. But in fact, what happened after about three or four years, this curve started levelling off. So what they uh, uh, concluded was that there was a group who, um, if they made it through the first three years of prostitution uh, without getting infected, appeared to be relatively resistant to HIV infection. And uh, they looked, because they were epidemiologists, they looked very closely at behavioural factors. And in fact, the only factor that came out repeatedly was uh, the more exposure the women had, the more uh, likely they were to be resistant, which obviously is, is, is not um, intuitive. Um, and we played with cells from the women in the laboratory and found it was very easy to infect their cells. In fact, the only person whose cells were easier to infect in the laboratory with HIV were mine, which is a bit of a worry, but anyway. Um, they, and the CCR5 gene was normal in them. Uh, so it, it wasn't that they couldn't be infected, or certainly not that their cells couldn't be infected. And you remember I mentioned HLA as, as a, one, of these, uh, one of these key uh, uh, proteins associated with the function of killer T cells. And there were very strong HLA associations with being resistant in these women. And what we found uh, working with uh, the Kenyan and Canadian group was that these women, just as the Gambians and just as the babies we've said previously, also had uh, killer T cells and helper T cells responding to HIV, and we could find them circulating in their blood. But they appeared to be enriched in the genital mucosa, which is where um, you would like them to be if, um, <coughs> if they were going to lead to protection. 
um, and they did the kind of things you'd want them to do as a, uh, in a vaccine. They, they targeted multiple parts of the virus that seemed to be uh, particularly targeting those parts that were similar between different strain, African strains. And uh, Rupert Kaur, working with me, found that uh, these, the, the longer you'd worked as a prostitute, the greater these immune responses became, uh, suggestive of an acquired immunity rather than something that was uh, uh, present innately. And, but also he found that some women who he had previously been thought to be resistant and even had these T-cell responses, if they took a break and went back to their families, and usually they hadn't told their families what they did in Nairobi, um, they may be away for a few months uh, and then came back to prostitution. These immune responses had gone, and in some cases that led the women to become susceptible to HIV. And this uh, is, is not dissimilar to what, uh, as a clinician, you would see uh, with people with malaria, that if you live in a malaria endemic country, you build up resistance to malaria over time. But, um, the, uh, but if you come to Oxford to, uh, for three years and then go back uh, to your malaria endemic country, um, you're, you, you, many people are appalled that they become ill with malaria for the first time for, for a decade or more. Um, so it's a partial immunity, not a, not a complete immunity. But of course, the public health message uh, that, uh, that springs from these kind of observations are, are that if you're going to use prostitution as a method of avoiding HIV infection, which is obviously not a good method, um, then you can't afford to stop. Um. <laughs> so our kind of scenario was that if you had uh, a lot of exposure and you were a susceptible kind of person, then most people can become infected. And in, in the Nairobi scenario is the sort of worst case, really. 90% of people can, uh, are likely to, in, in the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, are likely to acquire HIV. But probably in some people, perhaps it's the kind of virus they're exposed to initially uh, or the, kind, the way able, their immune system can respond, they can make a, an immune response that contains the infection and that subsequently exposure appears to boost immunity. So we thought this was um, something that encouraged the idea of developing a vaccine. And, and with another group of epidemiologists focusing on mother-to-child transmission, uh, we thought we would look at breast milk, um, and, uh, which was um, a, a, a particular concern um, because uh, it's something that's uh, uh, very important uh, for protecting children against a, a whole range of diseases, particularly in the developing world, but it's also a potent way of transmitting HIV. And breast milk has HIV uh, free in, in, in it and also inside immune cells. And about half of babies that become infected in the developing world uh, become, uh, get it, acquire infection through breast milk. And it's, it's presumably an oral infection because you can mimic this situation very easily in, in baby, baby monkeys. And yet most of the babies who may be drinking hundreds of litres of infected milk don't get infected. So uh, with my colleagues, we reasoned that breastfeeding could be just the right kind of exposure to infants uh, that could allow infants, could boost immunity in infants that were exposed to HIV but not infected at birth. A lot of the infection is thought to take place as the infant comes through the uh, birth canal um, and, uh, and, and swallows um, uh, is, uh, infected secretions. Anyway, I'm sorry I've told you that's only a tea time. Um, so what we tried to do was to see whether we could um, do it uh, on a statistical basis, show wh whether children who uh, had these kind of immune responses uh, were protected uh, from breast milk transmission. And uh, uh, my colleague Grace John Stewart designed a study uh, looking at a large group of women, and this was at a time that there wasn't any formal uh, prevention of mother-to-child uh, transmission program in Kenya, where, where mothers were given uh, AZT through the last part of pregnancy and offered formula milk. But if in in that part of Kenya, formula feeding is kind of like telling your neighbours that you have HIV. So most women still chose to breastfeed. And we looked at, through the ba at the babies through the first year of life using very sensitive assays to see if they were infected and also to look for uh, T-cell responses to the, immune, to the virus. And what we found was that um, an, an, a, a disappointingly large number of babies became infected. And I think that's because AZT isn't a very good prevention. And a lot of these infections were very early, particularly in the first month. And in, with hindsight, we would designed, designed the study differently. And the infection was much more likely at birth if the mother had a high viral load. But the late infections were all in breastfed infants. But looking particularly at what we were trying to, to uh, uh, um, uh, identify, we found that around half the babies had at least one, uh, at least one assay where we, we could detect a T-cell response. 
Um, and we didn't find it in babies that weren't exposed to HIV. So these were often very young infants um, who, whose immune system is often frequently considered to be immature. And they could be very strong. And statistically, um, the results just approaching significance, um, uh, and, uh, but none of the children that did have these T-cell responses acquired breast milk uh, um, infection, whereas those who didn't have infection, there was a, 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 a significant rate um, of infection, um, suggesting, although this is a correlate, uh, not a proof, that these T cells uh, can lead to resistance. So, mm. oh, that's a bit disappointing. <laughs> Um, I, I was just going to say that uh, most of you will uh, uh, know about the Thai vaccine trial and what, what I had put on this slide uh, was a picture of a sunset in Thailand and, and to tell you a little bit about the news that came out yesterday uh, of a vaccine trial uh, that appears to have succeeded where all, all previous ones have failed. And this is a vaccine that was tested by the US Army uh, in collaboration with uh, a, a number of authorities in Thailand and testing in a cohort of uh, young people in southeast Thailand. They studied 16,000 uh, people, comparing people uh, given a dummy uh, injections with people uh, given uh, the vaccine. And it was surprisingly difficult to find out um, in the course of researching this talk what uh, the vaccine actually contains, but it seems to be a, a, a canary pox, which is a, 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 an old relative of the smallpox vaccine um, that affects, infects canaries um, and doesn't really affect, infect people. So it's, it's, uh, it, it, um, it is a live virus but doesn't continue replicating. And it contains a few, not many, HIV genes. And they, they can, the vaccinees were given four uh, injections of that, of that vaccine, followed by... Um, uh, 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 two um, protein boosts which were designed to elicit antibodies although not the right kind of antibodies not the kind that would be effective at neutralising a primary isolative virus and the figures which were on this slide and I can't remember off, off my head uh, were that the, were, there were remarkably uh, low rates of infection in the trial so the figures are something like uh, 54 in the uh, vaccinated group and 71 in the placebo placebo groups are really very tiny numbers um, it gives a protection rate of uh, 33% which is what the big news was about yesterday um, and it is just statistically significant um, and it's a lot better than no protection um, but it has this has a lot of implications for vaccine uh, a partially effective vaccine clearly can't be used on a, on a widespread basis 30% protection simply isn't good enough to, to make it into uh, uh, public health uh, to, in, into sort of regular use. It does offer the possibility of trying to work out what the difference is between the people who were protected and the people who weren't, um, and say what are the things that the vaccine did that, that, that uh, correlate with protection. But the problem it probably poses for future vaccine studies is that it, although it only worked a bit, you would now have to use it instead of a placebo in subsequent vaccine trials, um, and which will make the subsequent vaccine trials very large and very cumbersome. I just wanted to point out that actually it's quite a, a laborious process to, to develop the va a vaccine. And even if you have something that works, there are lots of different, uh, or, or a good idea, there are a lot of processes that have to be gone through um, before a vaccine can be developed. Well, it's uh, this, uh, five o'clock on a Friday. And uh, before people get completely to this stage, um, I'll stop and see if you have any questions. Thanks very much.